Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Good morning. My name is Jonathan Butcher, and I'm a senior policy analyst at the Heritage Foundation. Thank you so much for joining us this morning for our event on reopening schools, special interest groups like teachers unions, and how to make sense of it all. I'm sure that some of you who are watching right now may have dropped your children off at school this morning. You may have uh, children home with you right now. You may be sharing office space with a spouse. Uh, and we're going to try to make sense of all this. I have three great panelists who are going to be with us. Before we do that, I wanted to mention some housekeeping items. You should see that on the screen uh, right now. The session is being recorded. Uh, please, please submit questions in the box that you should see there on the side of your screen. We'll be uh, setting aside time to go through all of those as we get into the event. So please feel free to submit questions and we look forward to uh, getting to as many of those as we can. And then you will see that uh, you'll be in listen only mode um, so the best way to communicate with us will be uh, by uh, using the question box there on the side of your screen. So with that, let's get started. So we're going to try to bring some clarity during this uncertain time. Yesterday, a group within the Detroit Teacher Union called By Any Means Necessary held a car parade outside of an area school in protest of in-person learning. Today, the city's teacher union is said to be voting on whether or not to strike to keep schools from reopening in that district at all. This is just the latest example of teacher union activity in recent weeks. At the end of July, the American Federation for Teachers endorsed what were so-called safety strikes, which was followed just days later by union protests in cities like Los Angeles, Chicago, Milwaukee, and others. Now, some of these cities have already decided that schools will not be opening in person. And yet the protests were held anyway to um, show that uh, these unions have something else in mind. Now, to complicate these matters even more, the special interest groups are making these reopening demands at the same time that they're calling for the defunding of police, paying off of individual mortgages, uh, all things that are a clear sign of some political opportunism. So how are parents to navigate all this? And what does this mean for your local school and what will be happening in the next few weeks? I'm so pleased to be joined today by three former teachers who are all leaders right now in the efforts to give every child the chance to succeed and create better opportunities for teachers. So I'm going to introduce them. And if they could join me here on the screen, uh, I'll say a little bit about them. So first, uh, we have with us uh, Rebecca Friedrichs. She is the founder of Four Kids in Country. She taught in public schools for nearly 30 years, and her lawsuit, Friedrichs versus California Teachers Association, sought to free teachers from forced unionism and was argued before the U.S. Supreme Court in 2016. I know she'll be saying a little bit about that as we get going. Larry Sand is the president of the nonprofit California Teachers Empowerment Network a nonpartisan political group dedicated to providing teachers with reliable and balanced information about professional affiliations and positions on educational issues. Larry began his teaching career in New York in 1971, and he retired in 2009. Starley Coleman is the CEO of the Texas Public Charter Schools Association. She has 20 years experience turning public policy ideas into laws. 
Prior to her work in Texas, Starley founded School Forward, a public affairs firm in Washington, D.C. that advances education reform policies. She won the Templeton Freedom Award in 2008 and has also won a Spark Freedom Award. So thank you to all of our panelists and thanks for being with us this morning. So let's start with a question. Let's get right to it. So what do you think is the best way for school districts to be handling the pandemic right now? It's a broad one. So Rebecca, let's start with you. What, what do you have to say about this? Well, I think school districts need to listen to the parents in their local communities and the true good loving educators in their local communities. They do not need to listen to the activists that the unions have planted into our schools as quote unquote teachers. So I think local control, it's real simple. Big government out, parents and local teachers in. Great, Larry, what do you have to say about that? Well, I'm just piggybacking on what Rebecca said. Uh, originating in the Catholic Church, subsidiarity, excuse me, subsidiarity is an organizing principle that stimulates, uh, that, excuse me, that stipulates matters that ought to be handled by the smallest, lowest, least centralized component authority, competent authority, excuse me. And our time's the most definitely screaming for this. Perfect example in California, Governor Newsom shut down 80% of, of schools. The two and a half million kids are going to be sitting at home. Why not leave this decision up to the individual school? It's parents, teachers, administration. At any given school, they're going to be parents who are, are afraid. Parents, Some parents are afraid to send their kids to school. Some teachers are afraid to go to school. Let those parents and, excuse me, let those kids and those teachers work online. Let everybody else go back to school. We do not need a one-size-fits-all uh, uh, answer to this problem. Yeah, I think that that's been something that we've heard from a lot of sectors. So, Starley, I'm going to ask you the same thing, but let me, I'm going to preface this just slightly here, right? So, Detroit surveyed, the Detroit public schools, they surveyed their families over the summer. Um, I was talking to some charter schools and private schools in Philadelphia, similar approach there, right? They surveyed their schools, tried to see what the parents wanted there. So, okay, school districts, how, how should they handle this? Yeah, I mean, I couldn't agree more with Rebecca and Larry. I mean, the, the point here is that school districts need to be able to decide for themselves what they want to do in response to parent what parents um, uh, are, are asking for. And I, look, in a, in a state like Texas and in a state like California and others, right, that we're, we're so huge that what's happening locally on the ground from community to community um, regarding the virus spread is completely different, right? There are parts of Texas that have zero to very few infections. And that's different than Austin, where I live, right, where we definitely saw a surge over the summer. So the response is going to be different. Um, but I would say that it's even beyond um, letting school districts make their own decision. Like when you look at the charter school community in Texas, we have 750 charter school campuses here. And there are um, big charter networks in Texas, um, like KIPP and IDEA and, you know, some of the uh, some of the, the largest charter networks in the country here in Texas. They're, they have campuses in some communities where everything is fine and it would be perfectly safe for those kids to come back to school and campuses in place where it's still a little bit scary. So letting each school district and each charter school network and each community make a decision about what is right for them, what is right for their kids, what is right for their, their parents and their teachers makes sense. And I think, you know, Larry put his finger on something that's really important too. 
even within a school community, the same thing is not going to be right for every family, right? I mean, there are, there are different um, different conditions in every single household, and schools need to be able to be responsive um, to, to the individual families as well. And I think what we're seeing all over the country, including here in Texas, is that there's this real push to make broad, um, one-size-fits-all mandates that just are not working. They're not working for families. They're not working for parents. They're not working for kids. I mean, we, we know that learning is going to be uh, devastated. Um, you know, it was we, we already saw that from from last spring. And if we go an entire uh, another school year where kids are not able to, you know, be in a classroom, be with their peers, be, uh, you know, in a situation where they are safe and with a teacher that is, um, um, you know, take helping um, uh, take charge of their learning. Um, you know, this is this is going to have ripple effects for a really long time. And, the, you know, the and I know we'll get into this, but this push uh, to keep kids out of school is is political. It is not there. There is nothing uh, there is nothing else going on there. Yeah, no, those are good points. I mean, I would mention, too, you know, Detroit says the Detroit Public Schools says on their website that they're giving families the option to choose. Right. They they've made it an option to do for parents to decide to do online or to go back in person. So I thought that was fascinating. Um, all right. So, uh, Starla, I want to pick up on that thought. And we're going to come back to you here about the a, a question that is at least related to education policy, because I think a little later we're going to talk about this politics issue of uh, demands that are not related to schools, but uh, we hear a lot about money, okay? So one of the teacher union and district mantras, uh, not just in recent months, but frankly, as long as I can remember, is that they are calling for more money, in this case, more money to reopen. So where, you know, where does this fall? Like, How does funding fit into the picture here? What's a reasonable request and what's not? Yeah, I... Um... You know, I, I know you and I have worked on this issue for a long time and talked about this a lot. And, you know, a, a lot a, a lot of times when um, um, school sort of traditional school groups are asking for, for more money, there isn't really a direct correlation to why why they would need that. But but I can actually say um, in this case, money is a real thing right now. Um, uh, you know, schools schools are, are having to pay for things that they um, had no um, anticipation that they would have to pay for, right? PPE for um, teachers, um, you know, the plastic desk guards that are going around um, kids' desks, uh, laptops, um, hotspots, you know, Wi-Fi for every kid. I mean, th these are real expenses that that schools did not anticipate. Now, does that mean that we need to double, triple, quadruple school budgets? But probably not. Um, but but we do need to make sure that schools are are being reimbursed for the these unanticipated costs. And um, you know what we've seen um, historically from the federal government, from like um, um, you know hurricanes and other natural disasters that have come that that FEMA money that normally comes to help reimburse these unexpected costs is um, very slow to come um, and and right now uh, you know the the fear I think for schools is that um, with federal money slow to come um, and the economic collapse that is happening at the same time because of the pandemic school budgets are are going to be cut, right? They're going to be cut basically everywhere in the entire country. That's a virtual certainty. And so how, how does a school couple the fact that they've um, had to, um, you know, cover these unanticipated costs with the fact that they know their budget's about to, to go down? That's hard. That's a real, 
that's a real issue right now. Um, it's not always the case, but right now it is a real, uh, a real thing. So Larry, uh, let me go to you because um, you know we're familiar with the CARES Act, right? I mean, we know that, that Washington has sent some money here. So how does that fit into the picture as we talk about you know union demands and what Starley was just saying? Well, I'm I'm sort of looking at the bigger picture here, Jonathan, and the any well, this and any government monopoly is a money pit. Class sizes keep getting smaller. We're now down to about a teacher for every 15 students nationwide. Over so we we can start with that. Um, when I was in third grade, I had 43 kids in my class. That was a few years ago, of course, but I, and I learned. And we had a, a school with, with one principal. We didn't have an AP. We didn't have 15 guidance counselors, and we were all fine. Uh, more recently, Kennesaw State University economics professor Benjamin Scafferty found that the number of teachers has increased nationwide about two and a half times faster than the uptick in students between 1950 and, and 2015. And even more egregious is the fact that uh, hiring of other educational employees, administration, administrators, teachers, aides, counselors, et cetera, was more than seven times the number of students. And, and what Scafferty says is the increase in all of the staff alone had matched student enrollment growth between uh, 92 in 2015, the most recent staffing data available, a cautious estimate finds that American public schools would have saved $35 billion a year. So since 1992, that would be a total of $805 billion. I think schools need to start cutting the, the, the waste, the fat, all the things that they've built up over the years before D.C. starts funneling more money in to the schools. So, Rebecca, um, you know, when you have more employees in a school setting, right, and, and it's in an area that is heavily unionized, that means that the union gets those members, too. So tell us a little bit about that. Well, that's exactly it. So I agree with Larry that uh, our schools are bloated. There's a whole lot of people up at the top that, quite frankly, we really don't need. Um, 28 years in a California classroom Every single time the uh, federal government or the state government pumped in more funds, I never saw it in my classroom. Never. Never saw a difference. I needed a teacher's aid so badly for some of these kids who you know, came to me reading four grade levels below grade level from the first day of school. Never had that help that I really needed. So there's a lot of corruption going on. And a I would say almost all of that corruption is connected to money. So, um, Jonathan, repeat the angle you wanted me to take on this question. I, I just forgot exactly what you asked. Well, sure. I mean, the, the, yeah, the big question here was about what, what does the call for more money mean right now? And from particularly from unions that have made the same call before right i mean they've this isn't new that unions have called for more spending per student yeah and so you know now we're hearing it again i guess there's a bit of a feel here that okay like starley was saying when you look talk to real schools there are real problems out there but how do we um sort of uh rectify this with a constant demand for spending you know what i mean like how much of this is yeah. a you know a bit of a political uh, taking advantage of a political situation, and how much yeah. of it is not. Right. As a classroom teacher, I think all of it is taking advantage of the situation. This is what the unions do. They are classic Sololinsky folks, uh, rules for radicals. Every single time there's an opportunity 
for them to get more money, they jump on that opportunity. What they're doing right now is unconscionable. They are damaging children. They're damaging great teachers. They're damaging our economy. Shame on them. Uh, in my opinion, as a teacher, the, the way we fix the problem is get the unions out of our schools. They are making a mountain out of a molehill. Yes, there are some issues. You know, I had the Asian flu that I caught from my students years ago. It was horrible. I thought I was going to die. But nobody shut my school down. The kids were still able to learn. So uh, we need to put children, the economy, and families ahead of politics, ahead of teachers' unions. So I do think it's all it's political. And I want to make one last statement on the money issue. You know, here in California, charter schools get about 75 cents on the dollar compared to traditional public schools. I don't hear charter schools complaining. I don't hear them saying they can't open. My husband's the president of a charter school. They have four schools now, I think. They're dying to open. And from day one, when this pandemic hit, it took them about three days to transition into the online learning. Their kids were learning, their teachers were teaching. And all I watched in the public schools, and I have a whole bunch of friends in the public school system, they were all frustrated. And it was because the unions were fighting for teachers to teach less. They, all the unions did was create a nightmare for everybody. The private schools, the online schools, the home schools, the charter schools, they were doing great. Only the public schools struggled. What's the difference? Unions. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a nice kind of segue onto the um, the charter school topic, which I think Starley is probably itching to to talk about. So let me let's do this. So Starley, say a word about how the schools in your network sort of adapted here, and then I want to go back to to Rebecca and Larry. But say, say a word about what charter schools did. Yeah, um, Rebecca, you're right on. Um, the charter schools in Texas. Uh, I was. Um, stunned, amazed, and blown away by, by how quickly they were able to make this transition in March. Um, about 330,000 kids go to charter schools in Texas um, at, like I said, about 750 campuses um, statewide. And I will tell you, like from, you know, March 13th, right, the day the world uh, shut down for everyone, um, by a, a bunch of our schools had spring break that next week. And instead of going on spring break, um, our uh, school leaders and teachers were working the entire week of spring break to transition to an online learning situation. By the next week, right, by, by that, the, the following week, basically by the 20th of March, seven days later, our schools were up online providing synchronous learning to children. So they were sitting on their computer with the other children in their classroom, with their teacher delivering live instruction, um, ready to rock and roll. And, um, you know, I will say too, that one of the things that was so fascinating to me through all of this was um, there in the spring, you know, all, all <laughs> of the um, traditional school districts in Texas were unified and calling for um, the elimination of our state standards test, um, no accountability scores or grades assigned to schools or districts, and the charter schools in, in our community were saying, wait a minute, why wouldn't we test our kids? Don't we want to know what's happening with them? Um, we want to we know how they're doing. We want to know how this is impacting their learning. Um, one of our schools had to actually fight with our state education agency to be able to give a test to their kids so that they would have data coming into the school year. And this is in Texas, right? So it is wild to watch all of this. And 
And to Rebecca's point, our charter schools want to open. Um, we have been uh, um, in a battle here in Austin for um, charter schools in Austin to be able to open their doors to a small percentage of kids um, that they could um, safely social distance and safely bring back onto campuses um, over the um, the objections of our local health authority and the, you know our our local politics. Right? We. Our schools want to open. They want to open their doors to the families that need somewhere to take their children so that the parents can get back to work. Uh, and it's, you know, it's, um, this is, uh, you know, this, ha this has a lot to do just with sort of politics in a, in a, you know, in a meta sense, but um, you know, certainly we cannot ignore the fact that there is a presidential election component to all of this, right? Um, and, and um, you know, in, in blue cities, um, there's a lot of pressure, I think, on on Democratic elected officials to defy what Trump is asking for, um, even if it even if it's a non-political situation for school leaders. I mean, the vast majority of charter school leaders um, in Texas and elsewhere around the country, and certainly here in Austin, are progressives, and they want to open their doors to serve vulnerable children, and the government won't let them. Yeah, thank you, Starly. Um, I want to go back to Rebecca and, and Larry now. So this this leads a little bit. I mean, let's where, where we started here was talking about what the unions are demanding now. And so Rebecca, um, do unions? I mean, do they represent teachers? I mean, do they speak for all teachers? I mean, are these are these strikes grassroots efforts? Uh, the protests that we've been talking about in Detroit and elsewhere. Um, and so, I mean, how much is this of this is sort of grassroots? How much of this is is not. I mean, are they speaking for all teachers? They are absolutely not speaking for good teachers. They are not speaking for all teachers. The only people unions speak for are the unions. And so the unions have, over the last several decades, actually handpicked people that they said, hey, you'd be a good teacher because you stand for, for our agenda. And they've actually placed these people into our schools across the country. So there are activist teachers out there, unions speak for them. But real teachers like myself, real teachers like Larry and Starley, the teachers I taught with for decades who have dedicated their lives to children, the unions not only do not speak for us, they're destroying us. They're destroying our profession. They are damaging our students. They're damaging our country. They are, uh, are anti-American. They are totalitarian. They're, they're literally pushing a Marxist agenda, claiming that they are representing teachers and they are not. So you asked if it's grassroots. So I wanna tell a little story. Uh, I have a teacher friend in Arizona. Her name is Catherine Barrett. She allows me to, to tell her story. Um, I met Catherine because I came to, to her town to speak and she was starting to figure out that something was wrong with these unions. She had stepped up and she was told that, um, oh, we can help improve your work environment and improve pay. And in her neighborhood, pay wasn't very good for teachers. And I don't want people to misunderstand. I know teachers making $120,000 a year. Don't believe that all teachers are not well paid. The ones that are not well paid are because of the union pay scale. That's a different conversation. But uh, Catherine Barrett was on the lower part of the pay scale. She was new. So she was getting in there and fighting for uh, better pay and all this. So she stepped up as a volunteer with the union and they said, we need to start these teacher strikes. So the union started talking to these teachers about what should we call it? 
oh, Catherine said it needs to be hip. So she helped make up the name Red for Ed. So you have these Red for Ed teacher strikes going on all around the country. It started in Arizona. So Catherine said they'd be out there picketing. She honestly thought it was just to get a raise. The governor of Arizona gave them what they wanted. Catherine, true to form of every teacher I know, said, wow, the governor gave us the raise. We need to write him a thank you note. We need to say thank you to the governor for doing, you know, for taking good care of teachers and, and students. Oh, no, the union would not allow that at all. They said, oh, no, now we're going to morph our efforts into, I forget what they called it, but it was something to raise taxes on all Arizonans. The unions want more and more and more. They want more power, more money, more control. They are pushing a Marxist agenda. They are the ones that are against America, the anti-American agenda, uh, indoctrinating our children. It's all coming out of the unions. They call themselves teachers. They call themselves unions. They are neither one. Uh, it's not grassroots. It's a political entity, a frightening political ideology that is using teachers and using unions to push an agenda. So Larry, um, you, when we were talking uh, prior to the event, you uh, mentioned, uh, I think the LA union, and you wanted to say something specific about what's going on there. And so how, you know, what is that, uh, what have you seen there out of California and in particular out of LA with yeah, uh, what work? Can I just comment on one thing that Rebecca said first, very briefly? Oh, of course. Yeah, uh, just I, I agree with everything she said, but, but there's a big but here. And the thing is that due to the uh, Janus decision a couple of years ago, teachers do not have to pay a union anymore as a condition of employment. So if any teachers are unhappy, they need to go to the union and say, look, you're not really representing me. I don't like what you're doing. And if you keep doing it, I'm going to stop funding you. If enough teachers did this, the unions would either have to change or be out of money or have a lot less money, I should say. Anyway, uh, yeah, the U UTLA, in, in the spirit of never letting a good pandemic go to waste, the United Teachers of Los Angeles uh, came out with a ridiculous document. It was a... Um, it was really a manifesto, and we, and they said they uh, wanted a federal bailout before they reopened. They wanted Medicare for all. They wanted to fully fund Title I as if there isn't enough wasted money in Title I. I used to be a Title I coordinator. I know there's tons of wasted money there. They wanted a wealth tax and a millionaire's tax. They wanted to fund the police. They wanted a charter school moratorium. And we have a new leader here, Cecily Meyer Cruz, who um, I believe it was August 13th, it was a big, it was actually a national day of resistance. And she went on a screed, which is just mind boggling. And she, she ended with a statement that said, as it stands, the only people who guarantee to benefit from the premature physical reopening of schools amidst a rapidly accelerating pandemic are billionaires and the politicians they've purchased. I about fell out of my chair when I read that and heard it. Billionaires want the schools to stay open. Why? Billionaires don't send their kids to public schools. They send their kids to Tony private schools. So the, the, the and it goes back to what Rebecca was talking about. These are political entities. The LA Teachers Union is run by Marxists, plain and simple. It's hardly a surprise that they supported socialist Bernie Sanders for president when, uh, obviously, before Biden was picked, the, the unions were picking them people across the country and UTLA picked uh, Mr. Sanders, obviously a democratic, in quotes, socialist. 
So they're, they're making hay, out, they're trying to make a hay out of this, as are other unions, but UTLA is a glaring example. So, um, Starley, I want to go to you here because we have some questions coming in from the audience. And so I, I think one of these is a good time for this. So those that are watching, please uh, submit more questions. We're gonna, uh, I'm going to start with one right now, and then uh, we're going to keep going through them. So um, uh, please uh, contribute here because we, uh, we, we want to be able to, uh, to talk about some of these tough issues, especially from the perspective of those watching. All right, so I have a question here that says, okay, um, some of this is widely known. Um, so what are we going to do about it? So Starley, talk to me about charter schools in Texas, charter schools nationally, charter schools as, as what they mean for alternatives for students, for parents, for teachers, um, and, and how that fits into a part of a solution. Well, I think, um, you know, this time, right, that, that we've all experienced over the last six months has, um, has shown parents a lot um, about about school, right? It's shown parents a lot about what is actually happening in their children's school, what they're learning or not learning, how their teachers interact with them. Um, and it's shown, um, it's shown a whole lot of parents um, that, that they, um, uh, that that they should be thinking more um, uh, ab about what kind of environment they're they're putting their children in, and I think that's one of the reasons why we're seeing such a surge um, ac across the sort of income spectrum, not just with upper middle class parents, but middle class parents and working class parents in creating these sort of pandemic pods, right? Because people are saying, wait a minute, um, you know, I, I, um, I need my kid to be in a place where they can learn every day. And if our school system can't handle that, I am going to find a workaround to make sure that my child is getting what they need. And I think, um, you know, this, this is going to be a really interesting shift. I, I think this is just going to be a like a, a, a permanent shift in the way that people think about their expectations of the school system and the responsiveness that they want to see from the school system. And that's one of the hallmarks of charter schools, right? I mean, that, that, that's what we're built to do. We're built to be um, on a smaller scale, uh, responsive to kids and families in a way that, you know, big, massive school districts are just not, not built uh, to be, right? That, that is who we are. We are built for kids. We are built for um, entrepreneurial educators to come in and say, um, you know, I think there's a better way for us to do this, whether that's I think there's a better way to teach math or I think there's a better way for us to organize our school day or whatever it is, right? So charter schools, um, you know, are, are complements um, in a lot of ways to, to the traditional school system. I mean, I think we do need to be honest with ourselves. Like charter schools are not a replacement strategy for, <laughs> for school districts. There's, there, you know, that's not what's happening, right? We've seen that over the last 25 years that, that charter schools have been open around the country. Um, you know, there, there's not going to be a scenario where um, every kid in America is going to an independently run school. That, that's just not, it's not, it's not uh, maybe, maybe in 100 years or whatever, but certainly not in any of our lifetimes. We're just not gonna see that. So we need to be thinking about how do we use um, the freedom and flexibility that charter schools have to, show the possible right and i think that's one of the things that um that is so interesting right now about uh, about about what we are experiencing as a country we have an amazing opportunity right now for um for 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 risk taking entrepreneurial teachers and educators to um to say okay wait a minute let's uh you know th this whole situation has probably permanently broken some things that needed to be broken um and now we have a chance to fix them right like let's 
rescale our schools. Let's think about what makes sense um, for families. Let's make sure that every kid is actually given the opportunity to be in the environment that is right for them, that is right for their, um, you know, for, for whatever it is, right? Wh wherever they find themselves on the academic scale or whatever is just gonna light their fire um, for, for, for creating that love of learning that, that every kid needs. Um, you know, everyone on this screen has, has kids and we all know that kids are not the same and, and it is incumbent upon us, right? The adults and the grownups um, in the system to create, to create a system that will make sure that every kid is getting what, what they need in their educational environment. And the idea that that happens in the same kind of school building, in the same kind of classroom, at the same kind of pace, uh, is is really um, outdated thinking, right? And, and I know we all agree with that, and I know the people who are watching today agree with that, otherwise they wouldn't be watching a Heritage Foundation panel, I get that. Um, but, there's still, but there's still a lot of work to be done, right? We are, you know, 25 years in this, into this, um, you know, work uh, in, in creating this new kind of public school, a charter school, and we still have so many people that don't understand that charter schools are public schools, um, and they, you know, we, we don't, we just, um, I think we still just are not thinking big enough, right? We are not thinking big enough about change. We are not thinking bold enough uh, about pushing the envelope to, to getting, getting us away from this um, sort of romanticized idea that we have as Americans that, that the sort of traditional public school setting um, is going to set every kid up for success or, or meet every kid's needs, and it's not. We know that. We see it now, right? More parents are seeing that now, and we need to just make sure that we are uh, just like the unions are great about taking advantage of opportunities, we need to be great about taking advantage of opportunities too. This is an amazing opportunity for us to show parents what's possible um, when they have more control uh, over the education of their own kids, and we need to make sure that we are all blowing the doors off that for them. Yeah, those are good comments, and I uh, want to go to uh, Rebecca with this next question. Before I do that, I have a comment here that says, I'd love to create a pandemic pod. I have no idea how to do that. If the our heritage team who's helping us with this event, I know that they're sending some messages to uh, groups in the audience. If it would be possible to send a link to the event that was hosted by Lindsay Burke just recently about how to create a pandemic pod, uh, we'll make that available to you and you'll be able to see there. Uh, Larry, you had your hand raised. Go, go ahead, Larry, no, before gonna, I go to the next uh, I was gonna bring up the pods, you beat me to it, but uh, that's okay. Uh, I agree with everything Starley said. This is a great, I mean, just as the unions are not letting a good pandemic go to waste, our side needs to do that too. And, and just for people who don't know, pandemic pods are small groups of children, family, a few families get together and, and teach each other's kids. And, and a family has a little bit of money, they can go out and hire either a teacher or a tutor to help this process. And it is exploding. There is a lot of Facebook groups, uh, with, with, you know, a lot of resources there for parents, even, and there is apparently a page for teachers who want to get involved. And this is obviously comes out of a crisis. This is uh, something, you know, I guess we could call creative destruction. And the public schools are not being helped. This whole thing that the unions think they're so, so smart, but this is going to backfire on them. Uh, a recent uh, poll by, it was true, it wasn't Rasmussen. Uh, anyway, showed that 76% of parents either want children in school full-time or a uh, either part or part-time, 76%. The unions are want no kids in school, period. This is a clash, and this is going to come back to bite the unions. 
Yeah, I think that's and that's a good segue to my next question that I want to give to to Rebecca here. But you, uh, those of us watching, you should be able to see in in your screen here. They did just post a link to how to start a pod in that event that we hosted uh, just recently. So uh, have a look at that. Uh, have a look at that link on your screen. So Rebecca, let me let me ask you this one, and this has been in line with what you've been saying here. Do you think that unions have overplayed their hands here a little bit? Do you think that um, they have gone beyond what um, parents and policymakers uh, are kind of expecting, right, a need right now. Um, and I, I would say just specifically some of these demands related to um, defunding police and um, paying off mortgages, which was on the, uh, the Today of Resistance's site. I mean, look, you can even take the, the policies themselves aside, but just say, like, why are teachers unions adding this to something? I mean, parents right now, they need some clarity. <laughs> they need clarity and school leaders need clarity and help here to um, do what's best for those who can't help themselves, right? And, and, and students and children. So, Rebecca, have, have unions overplayed their hand here? <laughs> they have. And from my perspective, um, Larry and I both have dug deep into teacher union uh, writings, resolutions, reading their annual business items. They've been pushing this agenda for decades, everyone, decades. And we've been blowing the whistle and hardly anybody knew what was going on. We just couldn't get our voices out loud enough since the unions also control most of the media. So uh, thank God they're overplaying their hand because finally the average American is seeing the truth. I mentioned earlier, these are not really teachers and they are not really unions, but what they did was they, they hide behind, look, if I was the devil and I wanted to destroy the world, what would I hide behind? Sweet faces. So they came, these Marxists came and they hid behind sweet teacher faces and our wonderful profession that everyone used to respect and adore. And they hid behind precious little children and, and they're destroying us. So finally, the American people can see the truth that we've been trying to expose for a really long time, that they are not really teachers and they are not really unions. I can't think of anything better happening uh, that they have. They've been overplaying their hand for a really long time, but they've finally done it loud enough that uh, everyone's seen what's going on. And hey, if I could, I'd like to address, you asked earlier, uh, there was a question from the audience about solutions. What can we do? Uh, can I take a second yes, to that? Okay, so yes, a few please. things, thank you. A few things I'd like to suggest. On our website, it's called fourkidsandcountry.org. Um, there is actually a menu item people can click called Teacher Freedoms and Protection. They can go there and teachers can learn what Larry said, how to opt out. We lead them to all the um, help they need, even lawyers, so that they can opt out. We have a sample letter for them. We, we answer their frequently asked questions because they're terrified. So we have a toolkit for teachers. So they can go there and do that. I ask everyone who cares, everyone who's on this web uh, webinar, to adopt a teacher. You know a teacher out there who is a loving, good person? Adopt that teacher. They don't know all the information you know. Uh, someone said this is widely known. It's widely known for some of us, but you would be surprised that teachers have no idea. Most of them do not realize that the union is the problem. So we also have a little menu item called Adopt a Teacher. It teaches you how to do that. It takes about three minutes. Um, and then further down the road, some of the things we're pushing for uh, through our organization is we believe that as long as the unions are in our schools because they are so corrupt, we're never going to fix any of these problems. They will always undermine us. So uh, we have to get the unions out. 
We're hoping that uh, hordes and hordes of parents will pull their kids out of the public schools. And our schools were never meant to be quote unquote public. That was something the unions and their friends morphed our schools into. So another thing we need to do is remove the departments of education at every level. I believe federal, state, and county has no business being in our schools. Get it back to total uh, local control. So that's just some high level ideas. Yeah, no, thank you. This, those solutions, I think, is, is a good place to move the conversation to. So, Larry, I want to um, go to you because you had mentioned uh, Janice. Before before you take that, though, um, there was a question here that was asking if this is going to be recorded. And this event is being recorded, and there will be a unique link for this event um, that you'll be able to access later. You can send to uh, people who you think would be interested to watch this. So uh, this will be av available once we uh, conclude here. So, um, uh, Larry, so we, we were you were talking about Janice. So tell us a little bit about about that decision tell us about uh, what your organization does and um, and you know help us with the with the answers here okay well the Janice decision a couple of years ago Re Rebecca got the ball rolling a few years ago I guess it was 2016 unfortunately Antonin Scalia died so Rebecca's case unfortunately got tossed Janice picked it up in 2000 I guess 2016 and started right after Rebecca I don't remember the exact year but the decision was in 2018 it was just two years ago and basically that freed teachers from paying money to a union period they didn't have to join before but they always had to pay money now they can say well you're not representing me I'm not going to pay you a thousand or so dollars a year and uh <laughs> In the two years, there has been a fall off in union membership, definitely not enough, in my opinion, but it, this takes time. And, um, you know, as Rebecca said, we, we need to talk to teachers. We need to, you know, one, two, three at a time and just calmly tell them that if the union is not representing you, you do not have to pay them, period. And it, because, you know, if, in other words, if, if teachers who are customers to the union are are still paying them, the union has no incentive to change. But if 50 percent of the teachers in, in a school district say you're not representing us, that union better start listening or they're out of business. And we still need to do more because teachers still uh, must be part of the collective bargaining unit. I can't bargain for myself. I may be the greatest teacher in the world, but I have to live with the constraints of the collective bargaining agreement. So, but that's a story for another day and a lawsuit for another time. But anyway, just to recap, the way things are now, teachers do not have to pay money to a union, and we need to convince more teachers to do that. Yeah, that's great. Um, so, Starley, I mean, we're we're talking about solutions here and getting around to what is available to teachers and to families. Um, I mean, I guess we could just kind of add that to the list of things that teachers and parents and students are kind of dealing with right now and all of the questions uh, that they're having at this kind of back to school season. So, you know, pick one for me. I mean, of, of the things that are before both teachers, parents, students, um, this issue of what options are there for teachers, uh, what options are there for parents, um, so what what options are are there and, and you know, what uh, either where to send your child or, you know, what to do if the school is is closed or not. So uh, unpack that a little bit for us, like what what problems are being faced by parents and families that, you know, right now. And then, how, you know, what what options are available to us? Yeah, well, I mean, there's there's all there's all kinds of stuff happening right and it's different in every state but but we certainly um you know as we talked about earlier are certainly seeing these sort of one size fits all mandates um to try to keep schools closed even 
for schools that want to open. J just this morning in Houston, for example, um, 10 of the largest um, public school districts in Houston, uh, the, the leadership of those districts signed a letter together saying, um, we want to open our schools. And these are these are district schools, right? Um, in de in uh, defiance of a local county order. Um, so, uh, you know, we're, we're, I think, I think so many of us are in the same boat right now where um, we would like to see our kids able to come back to campuses and, and the government is just not making that possible. So um, obviously, uh, you know, for, for families that can afford um, private school tuition in many states, private schools are not subject to the same um, orders uh, that public schools are subject to. So if you can afford that, or if you're in a state with tax credit scholarships or, or some kind of voucher or ESA program, obviously you should look at your options there if that's um, if that's of interest to you. Um, in many uh, school districts around the country, some um, schools are uh, starting to open to smaller groups of children. If you need uh, your kid to be back on a campus, check with your district about the transfer policy to to um, being able to go to a school that is open and certainly around the country lots of charter schools are also beginning to open their doors as well to smaller groups of kids so um, check uh, with your um, every state that has charter schools in the country has a state charter school association most of those associations will have a charter school finder on their website for you so you can look at your neighborhood and see uh, what schools, what charter schools are in your neighborhood, and you can start um, making phone calls. I know that there are lots of schools that are um, making spots available right now to kids that need them. So um, that, um, but, you know, those are sort of the, the practical options. And then, of course, as we put in the chat and discussed earlier, think about a pod. And if you're, you know, here's one of the things that I've been talking to charter school leaders about in Texas, and I'm sure this is happening in other states too. Um, if charter schools uh, are, are under closure orders, um, that doesn't mean that we can't create charter school pods, right? So um, many charter schools um, are, are looking at this idea of, you know, finding small groups of kids um, who are, you know, located close to each other geographically, whether they're in the same neighborhood or, or same part of town. Um, and, and trying to figure out how they get a teacher um, who can't go to campus right now because the government won't let them um, to come to someone's house or to even go to a, a, a local park, um, bring a, a hotspot. Uh, everybody brings their laptop. These, um, you know, these charter schools have books, they've got curriculum, and they're ready to teach. So um, check with your school about whether or not they're open to you helping um, uh, you know, create a pod from, from your own school network. Um, that is certainly a practical way uh, to go about the pod idea as well without having to come out of pocket to you know to to cover the salary of a teacher um, you know the teachers are being paid right now to not go to school um, so you know when uh, when we can take advantage of the, of the fact that there are teachers that want to be with kids and are you know ready to be with children now um, let's get them uh, with small groups of kids so that these kids are not losing another year of school yeah, I like that. That's a, I think a good um, a good tip for uh, for those who are watching, interested to help uh, parents. All right, we have just a few minutes left. I'm going to go through a couple of. Um, we're going to try to do this kind of in a rapid fire way, so we can get through some 
questions from the audience specifically here. Um, so let's move, um, uh, Starley, I'll give you the first uh, crack at this one because it does deal with local school boards and uh, something that we've emailed back and forth about uh, lately. But this question is, uh, in my state, reopening decisions are left to the local school board, but they're concerned about liability issues. We need liability immunity at the state or national level for school districts. Uh, that could have significant financial exposure. Have your charter schools in your network come to you with that question? Uh, where does that fall? Yeah, that's a that's a real issue. Um, so charter schools in Texas are covered already by a state immunity law um, for 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 um, government entities. So we're okay in Texas. We don't have that same concern, but I know that that's not the same in every state. Um, so that that is a real issue. Um, we know um, that there will be. Um, that there will be lawsuits, right? Um, as soon as a teacher gets sick uh, from a kid, um, uh, and and look, I mean, we have to be honest about this. Like, there, um, it is unlikely that uh, we will go the entire school year um, anywhere in the country where a teacher doesn't get sick and die from COVID, right? That's likely to happen somewhere. Um, obviously, no one wants that. That's the concern, right? That's the reason that so so many teachers. Um, are afraid to come back to the classroom because they don't they don't want to be the one right and a lot of school leaders I mean think about what would happen to a school leader especially like a charter school right where they don't have assigned kids or a private school where where parents have to actively pick if you're the one school in your state or your community where a teacher gets sick and dies or a kid gets sick and dies man you're gonna have a hard time getting people to come to your school the next school year so that's a real concern um so not only do we want uh you know to to make sure that schools have the freedom and flexibility to um you know to do what they need to do to keep their teachers and their kids safe but we also want to make sure um, that they're not shut down for making uh, a decision that they feel like is right for their community by opening to um you know to kids again um, one of the things, of course, that's going to be really important for schools is, uh, you know, in addition to working on the, the liability stuff, I mean, that's probably being handled in most states, like um, lawmakers are thinking about this. They know that this is a real issue, not, not only for private schools and charter schools, but for regular assigned district schools as well. Like they, they can't, they, they need to make sure that, that schools are protected. But something else that they need to think about, so that school leaders need to think about, is is making sure that um, if a teacher really feels strongly about not coming to campus because of a pre-existing condition or somebody in their household, like teachers really, um, or sorry, school leaders really need to be thoughtful about making sure that they're making accommodations for those teachers. That's an important issue. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that's that's good. Larry and uh, Rebecca, I want to ask the similar to you with a bit of a twist here. So. I mean, unions, don't they usually provide some sort of protections like this and liability for teachers? I mean, what what options do teachers have inside or outside of the union? Larry, can you speak a little bit about that? Um, uh, I'm sorry, you broke up a little bit. You, you're, you're asking about what kind of protections teachers have or should have. Yes, that well, and that they may have now, right? I mean, that's a part of what unions will claim as part of their value add, right? Is that they they have these kinds of liability related protections. Um, so, what what other options might a teacher have? Well, I mean, first of all, if teachers don't belong to a union, they can join other organizations like the Association of American Educators, Christian Educators, where they have liability insurance. Um, that said, if a teacher is in in their 60s and maybe has lung issues, some kind of pre-existing condition, they should maybe not be in a classroom uh, or, or just around other people, period. Uh, and th this is where the choice element comes in because of, a, you know, if enough parents don't want to send their kids to school, 
let those those teachers who are afraid or you know legitimately or otherwise teach those kids and it, it can work out and as rebecca said and i said earlier this should be local decision not coming from dc not coming from the state not even coming from the county but individual school boards parents teachers administrators make that decision on their own yeah, Rebecca, I'd like you to speak to this question too. Before you answer real quick, I just want to remind our audience that there is a uh, information sheet. There's a handout um, in your uh, box there on the side that you can download that has more information um, about uh, what we're talking about here. So please uh, make use of that and it'll be available after the event as well. Uh, Rebecca, so talk to us a little bit about this issue of liability and I mean, what, what kind of options teachers have? So I'm, I'm glad I get to address this question because I'd like the viewers to know that most teachers think because the unions told them, uh, oh, you're protected from being harassed and from all of these things because the union's going to protect you because you have this liability insurance within the unions. Well, one of the best teachers I know that I worked with for 24, 25 years was fired in three days. Why? She did nothing wrong. She was falsely accused. Well, she was accused. She wasn't sued. She was accused. And so the union came to her finally. She sat all day with no support all day, locked out of her classroom. And the union came and she said, oh, great, you're here to defend me. And they said, oh, what? And Oh, no, we only defend you if you get sued. And so because she had been harassed by her administrator, and falsely accused, they said, well, if you'll give us another $100,000, we'll defend you. So she lost her job. It was unbelievable. So teachers think they're protected by the union. They're really not. Um, as far as being sued over you know, some teacher getting uh, COVID or something like that, that really has nothing to do with the liability insurance that's provided through a union. Um, I agree with Larry on that. If you're a teacher and you really feel vulnerable, then don't then you should be one of the ones who you know just teaches from home or you do something different maybe with your life um you know devote yourself to an online learning or something like that almost every single teacher i know and this needs to be said almost every teacher i know wants to go back to the classroom they are so sick and tired of this they see it as politics they are so used to being in the classroom and being exposed to germs as part of being a teacher and most of them are not afraid, but the union is, is the one setting the narrative, so they're claiming all the teachers are afraid. The teachers that are not afraid don't have a voice. So now you know a lot of them really want to go back. So um, as far as if a teacher leaves a union and needs liability insurance, they can get actually double the liability coverage from individual sources. They can find that on our website, too, under that uh, teacher freedom and protection section. And so teachers need not be afraid uh, to leave their union. In fact, they need to be afraid to keep their union. So uh, I hope they I hope they find their independence. Yeah, thank you. Larry, did you have something you wanted to add there? I saw you uh, ready to speak as, as Rebecca was going. Um, not really. Rebecca really said, said it all there. I don't really have anything to add. Well, and I know that as I've talked with charter schools, uh, particularly some in Philadelphia and then private schools as well, you know, they're talking about returning in sort of a hybrid format, you know, where they're in person certain days of the week because they feel like being in person at least part of the time is so important. And, uh, and so they're trying to make that uh, a priority. So I believe that we are out of time. 
thank you so much to all of you who have joined us online. Thank you especially to our panelists. Uh, I'm so grateful to each of you uh, and for everything that you shared. Um, you can see uh, on your screen there how to um, uh, contact uh, some of our, our panelists here, either through Twitter, social media, and elsewhere. Um, again, this event has been recorded, and so you will be able to watch this um, in the next couple of days. There'll be a unique link uh, for it. So thank you to everyone. Thank you to our panelists, and we wish everyone the best, especially parents and students, as they get back to school this school year. So thank you for joining us.